Venerable Master, Dharma friends, welcome to our Sutra Lecture tonight. Uh, this is the um, 4th of May today, May 4th. May 4th movement time. I don't know if we celebrate May 4th movement, but it's that time. And uh, we're here in Berkeley, California, looking into the Flower Garland Sutra. And uh, what we do before we actually open the text is we recite the name of the sutra and also the Buddhas and Bodhisattvas. It's the practice of invocation. So um, this has a lot of functions and um, probably most significant would be um, as we recite this name, and it's, it's on the front cover of your text there, we're um, inviting, it's an invitation to the Buddhas and Bodhisattvas to come into our hearts. Uh, to uh, physically know, but their light and their their uh, samadhi, their stillness, their uh, mm, capacity to understand. So uh, the intent is that by doing that, we'll be uh, open to the, the deeper level, deeper levels of this text. It'll go in deeper. So let's do that. Namo da fang guang fo Turn in your text to page 20 and 21. We're right at the top. And I should say at the start that we're going to end at 9 tonight. Uh, we usually go to 9.30, but uh, there's a, I have a, a variety of duties that I have to perform uh, in a very short time before my airplane takes off tomorrow morning at 9 o'clock. So um, we're going to finish up at 9. If you only come on Saturdays, you won't know I was gone. <laughs> How can we miss you if you won't leave? That's what they say. No, not really. So we're up at the top. Fuzi, 
，佛子，是命略说，菩萨摩诃萨，第四言会地，菩萨住此地，多作许耶摩天王。以善方便，能出众生，身见等惑，令住正见。Okay, to the right, disciples of the Buddha. This is known as a general discussion of the Bodhisattva Mahasattvas. Fourth ground. That of blazing wisdom. When the Bodhisattva dwells upon this ground, for the most part, he becomes a king of the Suyama heaven. Using skillful expedients, he can make living beings expel their delusions, such as the view of a body. And so forth, and influence them to hold right views. Okay. So let's、um, try our best to go deep into this text. This is a very, very old book. If you look at it as a book. It's wisdom that goes further than most thoughts. It it sees deeper, and to understand it at another level than just the level that we read books at, we have to take a big deep breath in a way. Have to kind of settle in for the long haul.、Um, Quieter and calmer our minds and hearts, the the more this will resonate. It it actually lights up. It serves kind of as a, a flashlight down in the deeper parts of the mind, where we only get、um, through through wanting to, through intentionally listening, listening deep. To our to what's going on inside, so、uh, I think that's why it's still around after all these years because it works that way for so many people. It's like a a do we have flashlights on our phones these days? Is that where most of us carry? Do you all know that you can have a flashlight on your phone? I have four different flashlights on my iPhone. And they're all remarkable. They're super brilliant. You don't want to look at them when you turn it on. And so we have a flashlight right there in our phone. And when you light that flashlight, and suddenly what was dark before opens up. The you can see where to put your feet so you don't fall down when it's dark out. So the sutra does that for a lot of people and has for a very long time. It's like a flashlight on the path towards understanding. So it says, disciples of the Buddha. That's us. This is known as a general discussion. So he's talking about what we've what we've been 
studying for months now. This the the above meaning everything in this volume, um, the uh, instructions on how to practice the way bodhisattvas do that we've been looking at. This is known as a general discussion, meaning not deep specifics, not detailed. Uh, if it were detailed, it would be a whole sutra all by itself. But it's a, it's a principle, discussion of principle. Here's mostly what bodhisattvas do, is what it said. Bodhisattva Mahasattva, this is the uh, bodhisattva champions among bodhisattvas, the ones who stand out. Fourth ground out of ten, that of blazing wisdom, yen hui di. Every one of the ten grounds has its own particular name. It's got its own qualities and name. And we always remember the first one because it's happiness, huan shi di, the ground, the stage of happiness. So we've come along to the ground of yen hui. Yen is like flames, like sparks sometimes. Hui, wisdom. So the stage of wisdom that flickers like flames, it burns, it's hot. It can consume and it sheds light. That's the bodhisattva's wisdom. And it corresponds to, as we've said, the paramita, the perfection of vigor, strength. Each of these, part, each of these grounds uh, crosses over, parallels, matches one of the perfections, the paramitas. And this one is number four, vigor. Pusa jutsudi. Okay, we've, we know that much. Now, when a bodhisattva or somebody training to be a bodhisattva, um, let me say one thing about that. It's, I think it's very helpful to remember that Buddha is a title. It's kind of like director or general manager or boss. Titles like that. The Buddha is not a person. When we say, you know, the Buddha Shakyamuni, the Buddha Amitabha, the Buddha Maitreya, the Buddha Vairochana, etc., that's that particular individual who took all of the ignorance out of his mind over many, many different lifetimes um, with great effort and revealed all of the light that was there in his uncovered nature. When he did that, he was called awakened, Buddha. Okay, so it's a title. It's very much like saying when this person paid the tuition, took the courses, bought the textbooks, um, took the tests, and passed the exams, we called him or her a graduate. Maybe a title, maybe MD, maybe LL, uh, LLB, maybe JD, jurisprudence doctor, maybe engineer, maybe uh, PhD, doctor of philosophy. We gave that person a title and it's, it indicates an accomplishment. Bodhisattva is anybody who wants to do what bodhisattvas do. It's a title. It's a rank. It indicates ability. You're able to uh, see and think these ways because this is what bodhisattvas do. So I think that's really helpful to realize that. It's not that there is a bodhisattva once upon a time who was so good or so special 
are so privileged that they were able to have us tell their story centuries, millennia later. No, it's you, when you do what this, this level of skill um, would have you do, you fill in that title. You become the bodhisattva the sutra's talking about. So I, that's, that's an interesting way to look at it. It takes it off individuals and puts it into your heart, into your body and mind. And it, it, it becomes very democratic instead of being exclusive or privileged. It's not, oh, the rich people on the hill get to be bodhisattvas and we down here in the flats don't. Not, it's not that. It's that anybody who takes this on and works hard can fill in, put their face in this uh, generic space called the bodhisattva's visage. Okay? When the bodhisattva, Zhu Tsudi, lives here, Zhu, does he dwell? Who dwells? Um, this is where I dwell. No. What do we say? Where I live. This is where I live. Zhu, here. Just means when the bodhisattva stays here. When that person is on this stage, fourth stage. When somebody who's cultivating stays on this level, I think that's the way to think about it. It's not when the bodhisattva dwells here. That's, we hit on that word when we were translating early and it kind of it stuck, but I don't think of anybody dwelling anywhere. Right? It means when you stay there, when you live there. When the bodhisattva passes through this place, mostly, for the most part, meaning there are exceptions. For the most part, the bodhisattva there what does that mean? It means this bodhisattva is in the body of a god. Look at that. So where do bodhisattvas live? Well, they live in the desire realm. Shuyemotian is the, the Suyama heaven. It's a desire realm heaven. It's under Mara, still in desire. It's one of the levels of the heavens. And do we have um do we have a sense of what this might mean? Heavens from the Buddhist point of view are a place. This is a geographical reference. There is a place called the Suyama heaven, and it's usually they go up. You know, you think up, you don't think in or left. It's usually up. If you if you think of uh hells as down and heavens are up. But it's more than that. It's more than just, let's go to the heavens. Let's go to the Suyama heaven. It's, you could be sitting right here in the Berkeley Buddhist Monastery tonight, but your essential nature, your mind, your heart, could be that of a Suyama heaven god. And unless you're telling us, we don't know. And if you tell us, we will suspect you. We will have serious doubts if you say, did you know I'm actually a Suyama heaven god? Oh yeah, prove it. Shazam! Oh, my goodness. Maybe you, would you sign my sutra please? Could you sign right here? So, uh, what is a Suyama heaven god? How would you know? Well, they wouldn't tell you, but you'd see a peaceful, calm state of mind, for sure. Somebody who would probably be radiant. What is it about the Suyama heaven? Well, the one of the neat things about the sutras is they talk about the heavens in great detail. The heaven of the four kings, the heaven of the 33 gods, Sancho Santian. The, um, the next one is the Suyama heaven, number three. The next one is the Tushita heaven, number four. 
The next one is the heaven of bliss that comes through transformation, joy that comes through changes that you make. And the last one is where Kinyama, where, I'm sorry, wrong, where Mara lives, where the king of the the, the demons lives, the demon king. And that's called the heaven of joy that comes from others' hard work. So the gods there, although I'm, I'm told that they will vigorously deny it, but they're, what they're about is they're basically stealing other people's, devouring other people's joy and bliss. So, um, sounds like Wall Street, doesn't it? You think Wall Street is a heavenly state? That's interesting. Huh, I never thought of that. So, here we are, the third level of the desire realm, the Suyama realm, and as, as the... Now, I'm, I'm hot on this because in my hand... I have the talk that I'm about to give in Nassau in three days. And you'll notice it's not, it's either ready to publish as a book or it's a very scattered talk because I've got all these things that I want to say and I haven't narrowed it down to what I'm actually going to say in the hour that I have. So one of the things that is here in this talk about uh, that I'm going to give is what is a world like? And if we know what a world is like, we know where the Suyama heaven is. And what do they tell you about the Suyama heaven? It's above the sun and the moon. So it's kind of funny to think about something beyond the sun. And if you're beyond the sun, does that mean you're, you're out of space? No. It says that worlds have in the center a ice cream upside down, no, right side up ice cream cone shaped mountain called Sumeru. Mount Sumeru, right? Sumeru. The Miao Gaoshan, wonderfully tall mountain. And it's shaped like that. Skinny part at the bottom and the wide part at the top. Who lives on the top are the gods of the 33 gods heaven. Sancho Santian, the triastream of heaven. They're on the top. Halfway up are the four kings of heaven. So the second heaven is on the top of Mount Sumer. The first heaven is halfway up. And you leave the second heaven to get to the Suyama heaven. And around this triangular mountain are the sun and the moon. And that's an earth. That's a, that's a world. And you have four heavenly, four, the four continents and seas of fragrant water and things. So you climb off of Mount Sumeru to the third heaven. The light of the sun and the moon doesn't shine there. So what do you do? Obviously, you have an iPhone with four or five flashlights on it, right? Not... The, the gods' bodies themselves shed light. To be a Suyama heaven deva, you are radiant. You don't need sun and moon because your body sends out light. And apparently, they say, they communicate with light as well. So their words are light. Can you imagine the poetry in that heaven? What it would look like? So language comes out in a very different kind of symbol set. It's not, you know, vibrations that vibrate your inner ear and your brain, your brain translates into meaningful units. No, it's light is the, me- the vehicle for communication. Pretty amazing. I mean, think about that. And you wonder what kind of things can you say as a Suyama heaven god? My guess is very little profanity. 
no four-letter words, probably. What kind of light would F-U-C-K radiate, you know? Not, it wouldn't. It'd be black, you know, dark. So here we are in our world, you know, using all kinds of, hearing hearing all kinds of four-letter words in popular entertainment. And my guess is that in order to be in that heaven, your speech is so refined and so beautiful that it shines. What an interesting idea. What is the color of the words that I speak? If my words were light, what color would they be? Hmm. Do I qualify? What level of heavens do, do I, does my speech qualify me for? Sorry. <laughs> you know, not up, but down. You know. So, interesting idea. What's it like being a god? My goodness. There's all kinds of, the sutras give us all kinds of information about these gods. Um, their relationship between men and women. When, when people fall in love, the way they relate is very different than the, the gods down below. And as it goes up higher and higher, it gets more subtle and more refined. So you, men and women relate with looks. Just a look is enough. Glances. So how amazing. So this is the, uh, and apparently it's very blissful. You know, it's not that that's diminished. It's, it's heavenly, deva-like. So how interesting to have a place in our world, every world has the heavens going up. And that's just the desire realm. And there's the form realm and the formless realm all the way up. And then you leave that world. So the sutras give us all this amazing information about, about world systems. Very wonderful. So when the bodhisattva stays here, for the most part, they are kings of the Suyama heaven. They don't have to be. They can be other things as well. But by and large, now, every god in the Suyama heaven is a bodhisattva in the fourth ground? No, I don't think so. But that's one place where a bodhisattva who has this level of skill, you'll find them. You'll find them on the Suyama heaven. How about that? So interesting. Lives of the gods. We could write an entire, you know, series of, of novels, young, young adult YA novels on you know, with facts from the, the sutras about the gods. Okay, moving on here. What does it say? Yi shan fang bian, nang chu zhong sheng, shen jian deng huo, ling zhu zheng jian. Using skillful expedience, he can make living beings expel their delusions, such as the view of a body and so forth, and influence them to hold right views. So, Suyama heaven kings or Suyama heaven gods they don't have to be kings they're just residents of the Suyama heaven have the ability to convince you to see things correctly that's what they do what does it say it says they're skillful they're good at which means they might sing they might paint they might make podcasts they might uh, use gesture mime, dance. Uh, they might lecture and give you skillful reasoning, very logical. Or they just might be such good people that you want to believe them. They, they're just something about their radiance moves you by your heart. That's what it means, skillful expedience, right? It's just whatever they do hits the spot. 
you hear it and you go, yeah, I, that's right, isn't it? Right? Skillful expedience. Two, look at this. To do what? Nang, chu, zhong, sheng, shen, jian, deng, ho. They can get rid of our, sentient beings means us, shen, jian, our view of a body and other kinds of ho, delusions, wrong views. What these devas are really good at is, what these bodhisattvas are really good at is challenging what we think is true and showing us how far off it is and then making us want to get another view. The one that's listed is shen jian and that's a big one. It says our view of the body is mostly off. What we think the body is is by and large deluded, meaning not the way it is. And there's a series of what are called xie jian, wrong views. And there are different lists of them. But um, it's a fascinating list, and we will go into it on, on another occasion. It's a great um, Dharma talk topic. So the novices or anybody who has a chance to speak Dharma, pick up the various false views, the, the xie jian, the wrong views, that when it's the list, and uh, uh, you'll have a lot of material for, for Dharma talks. And one of them uh, is, is fascinating. It's the view of prohibited morality. It's being too uptight, taking the, overdoing the precepts. That's, that's a wrong view that the Buddha listed. So uh, the view of precepts that become uh, limiting just for themselves versus precepts that keep us from doing behaviors that will move us from samadhi. One of the wrong views is precepts that become an obstacle themselves. That's how psychologically astute the Buddha is, tuned in. There are some people who just love to tell you no, Right? Don't, do not, do not, do not. And they get their identity from being the, you know, the cop, your policeman, uninvited usually. So that's one of these false views. But the one they mention is Shen Jian. And that could be the end of the lecture tonight if we went deeply into that, just talking about the body. If we did not see the body deluded, um, if we saw the body with zheng jian, as it says, ling zhu zheng jian, so that we can stay with right views, if that were true, um, cosmetic companies would go out of business. L'Oreal and uh, Johnson & Johnson, we wouldn't have those companies getting us to look in the mirror and go, I don't like what I see, I want to change it. My body, that there's the bad hair day, you know, or I need to pluck my eyebrows, right? Or these shoes just, you know, or this, these, what is it? These, these shorts make me look fat, right? It's like, mm, come on. Diets, diets would go away if we saw the body the way it is instead of the way the marketplace wants us to see it so that we will reach for that plastic credit card and plunk it down and buy the product. So 
um, advertising and corporations exist because of our shenjian, our view of the body. It's true. Uh, doctors, oh, plastic surgery. Imagine plastic surgery. Did anybody see? By the way, this was. Huh, um, I I look at photography blogs. I I'm interested in in the phenomenon of photography, writing with light, right? Japanese is shiren, writing true. I like that. Photography, writing with light. And there's one called Petapixel, Petapixel, run by some guys that originally from Davis. And petapixel.org or .net, just type that in, you'll find it. They're keeping up on the phenomena surrounding photography. So, for example, uh, um, combat photographers who go into war zones and what they bring back, um, the fact that Kodak's film division was finally sold. Kodak, what, you know, Kodak was synonymous with, they're gone, but they're not entirely gone. People are still buying them and stuff. So Peter Pixel, this blog that I enjoy, is talking about that. And when there's some br- breakthrough, the astronaut, there's a Canadian astronaut who's sending incredible photographs back from the, 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 uh, the station right now, the space station. Anyway, they always cover the phenomena around photography. And one of the most interesting ones that came up uh, in the last couple weeks was um, there is Miss Korea contest is being run. I don't know if it's Miss Universe or, or whatever the, the uh, beauty pageant. But 22 young women made it to the finals. And somebody in Japan noticed a phenomena that of these 22 young women, they all looked alike. And why are we chuckling? Because we know why they all looked alike. There is a phenomena in Korea, but other places too, where uh, for birthdays, for graduation, parents give their daughters plastic surgery. It's the, if you want to get wealthy in a hurry, become a plastic surgeon and move to Korea. Because even politicians have plastic surgery. It's a very common phenomenon that people will have just work done on every part of their body from head to toe, you know. And so here were these beauty pageant contestants and this clever photographer, first in Japan, but then it went around, it became viral. She took uh, the eyes and stabilized the eyes and the nose using Photoshop. You can do that. They, they, Put every, they, you know, you can drag every photograph until the eyes match on a different layer right over the top of each other one. So they stabilized the eyes and the nose and then made an animated GIF file of flipping through all the 22. The eyes and the nose were the same in every contestant except like two. And the, the pictures went flip, 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 flip. The eyes didn't move and the nose didn't move. It was the same. And they looked into it. It's because the same plastic surgeons using the same model of beauty operated on all these young women. They were actually alike, just alike. And people thought, well, number one, how are you going to choose the queen, the, the winner out of all these young women who, who were surgically adjusted to look just the same? Amazing. And the only thing that was different was, in some cases, hair color. 
because they, they change their cheekbones, they change their foreheads, they change their noses, of course their eyes, and their mouths, and, their, and to make them all look beautiful, according to a couple templates that the, the doctors, as they go through medical school, are told is the standard for beauty. They're very good plastic surgeons, and they made these girls look like models. They look like, I mean, model meaning template model, stencil model, you know, not like fashion models. They, they were that too, but how funny. And, and so the pictures flip by, and you're going, is that one girl or 22 girls? And the answer is, they look all alike. So are we confused about our shenzhen? Is that a delusion? Well, I don't know. Maybe these girls are very happy, you know, to look beautiful according to the new Korean standard of beauty. But it makes the beauty pageant judge's job really tough to pick one out of that bunch. So Korea, uh, everyone was amazed when the mayor of Seoul confessed that he had had plastic surgery done. You know, men too, not just women. So it's, it is a cultural phenomena that, that uh, people expect in their lifetime to have a doctor sculpt their faces and bodies into something that they weren't born into. You know. Could I use some? I guess so. I'm kind of, you know, look younger. Right. It wouldn't hurt a bit. Just, you know, hey, we haven't seen the monk for a week. When he comes back, he's got bruises, you know, and some lines here. Oh, boy. You're looking a lot younger, Dharma Master. Biguan, that's right. You go into seclusion. When you come out, you're different. Imagine if we could have our Buddha nature go under the knife, right? Have some plastic surgery in our Buddha nature, removing all the ignorance, removing all the delusions. Wouldn't that be good? We'd have one Buddha template and everybody fits it. Fascinating. So, anyway, the Buddha would say, yeah, that's a shen jin. That's a view of the body that doesn't correspond to what it really is. Now, um, at this point, there are monks who would delight in... There are lecturers who would delight in telling us what the body is really like. And I, I am not one of those monks because we've done it before. But um, when you go to India, it's one of the places where you can actually, and Thailand is another one, where you can actually see the, what the body is really like because they don't hide it. We go to great efforts to hide what the body is like. And just for an example, what's the biggest organ of the body? The answer is the skin. The skin is the biggest organ of the body. It is. It is one organ. And as all living things, it, uh, it has four, four phases. Intake, compression, power, and exhaust. Right? Any of you mechanical engineers? Intake, compression, power, exhaust. Right? Like the engine. A cylinder in a car. Intake, it comes the gas and the, the air. Compression, the piston comes up. Power, the spark. <laughs> Exhaust, out goes the, ga- out goes the, the uh, carbon monoxide and all. And the, the pistons go, and the engine moves, right? Our heart does the very same thing. Intake, compression, power, exhaust. All things that beat like that have the exhaust phase. Our skin exhausts, excretes 
stuff. What is it? Sweat, fat, burned uh, proteins, water, oil, all the different things that our, our skin um, does very well, thank goodness. You know, I'm going to sneeze here. <coughs> that was the exhaust phase. Mm. <laughs> all right. There's a fascinating new analysis of why humans are the dominant species of all the other ones. I mean, look at us. Face to face with a four-legged creature who has and right and can run fast. Why did we succeed? We are defenseless. I mean, that's really fragile, you know? Any critter with teeth can, can eat me up. I have no defense. Why did humans succeed? Fascinating story. I'll tell you why. Aren't you glad you came tonight? Here is why humanity is the number one successful species. It's because of our skin. What? Yeah, it's true. Humans are the most fearsome hunters of all because we perspire. In Africa, let's say we, let's put it in, you know, North Dakota, if you want. In Africa, we started to pursue an antelope. And the antelope can run really fast, but not really long. Why not? It cools itself with its tongue. What does an antelope have? It's got fur on its thick skin. It doesn't sweat. There's no such thing as antelope sweat. So the antelopes, way faster than we are on a sprint, but humans can run. We are runners. We run, run, and run, and we sweat, and we cool off. We don't get this peak of heat that makes us have to stop before we boil over. We sweat. We exhaust the exhaust phase out our skin and keep running and the antelope overheats lies down and says I can't run another step the human walks up and sticks a spear in him because the antelope's overheated and exhausted that's why we are the dominant species because we can run longer because we can sweat I knew you were glad you came tonight right to learn all these things Fascinating theory. I read this the other day from a who? This is from a running book about uh, the Tarahumara Indians and the thousand mile, the uh, born to run, right? Born to run is a great book about uh, how, how we can run for a very long time. We outrun animals because they overheat and they have to stop and we don't because we can sweat and we regulate our inner temperature. How about that? What a fascinating idea. So here's that organ, and it excretes intake compression power. And boy, if you've been next to somebody who's been running for five hours, you know, they probably smell pretty good because they're healthy. They couldn't do that. But you don't want to be in a, in a tight room with them, you know, sitting across the table because you go, uh, could you take a shower? You know, when was the last time? You, excuse me, but, you know, has anybody ever mentioned that you have BO? You know, we don't, that's not polite to say that body odor but that's that's what our bodies are like they're magnificent machines but 
they are constantly excreting kidneys, liver, intestines, you know? That's how we work. We're this amazing, totally amazing machine that most people would go gross if we could see what it's like. Oh boy. Uh, okay, when uh, Kevin, what's his name? The basketball player? Uh, in the NCAA, what's his name? Kevin? May remember? This uh, played, he played for the Louisville team, right? Louisville. University of Kentucky or Louisville? Uh, they won NCAA. He was their guard, and he went up for a shot, came down, and fractured his leg. The camera was tight on it, and the bones came out. And everybody went, oh. his teammates just were on the floor, just going, they, some of them nearly upchucked, just to see the white bones come out of this guy's leg. This moment, he's a champion athlete. The next moment, he's, his body is a compound fracture broke the skin, the bones are showing on TV, and the clip went viral. It just went, everybody, you know. So you got to see his leg break in a dramatic moment in the semifinals of the NCAA a month ago. Well, he's, he became the spirit of the team because this guy is apparently quite courageous, and he, he never complained. He came right back the next night, having been released from the hospital with a cast this big, on the bench cheering his team on to victory. Kevin... I've forgotten, but quite a heroic guy. And he became the catalyst for the team to go on and win because they won without him. But he was there, and they won for him, right? So everybody saw what's inside the skin, and we all went, <gasps> you know, how gross. You're not supposed to see the leg like that and come out of the skin. That's what's in the body, right? And we look at it, and we think, oh, my legs look nice and firm, you know, or I better put some, some sunblock on there so I get a nice even tan, something. You know, we look at the surface and don't know what's in there. That's the point. And we get confused about beauty and ugliness. We have all these things called eating disorders, which are no joke. And they come from this view of the body. What's it supposed to be like versus what it's really like? what it's really like. That's where the confusion happens. And where do we learn what it's supposed to look like? Well, advertising, Barbie dolls. Barbie dolls are poisonous. They, they poison a generation of people, thinking that everybody is, this is the standard. We're supposed to look like Barbie dolls. And guys are supposed to have a six-pack. Abs, right? And so, have you ever been to a health store recently? Health stores that they're, they're that's a funny name, health stores. And if those are health stores, what's the grocery store? <laughs> it's a disease store. Oh, right? So, so health stores. Health stores, uh, when I first started going to health stores, those are the places that sell pills mostly, you know, vitamins and weird supplements. Well, recently, with the advent of ripped bods, health food stores are selling protein powder. There's this huge line of stuff meant to bulk you up, bulk you up, so your biceps bulge out. And there, there's protein supplements and steroid stuff sometimes, and they all claim they're not steroids, but how come there's a generation of bodybuilders who suddenly all look buff, is the word. 
chances are they're devouring a lot of that protein powder which you, that stocks the shelves now. I was in the, the uh, health food store in El Cerrito on San Pablo there looking for some herbs at one point. And uh, I was amazed, this huge shelf, a long shelf of 20 different varieties of creatine and these substances I'd never really heard of or seen, but there they were. And they all promised that, you know, you'll bulk up and become Mr. Atlas, right? My goodness. And they make a lot of money. And if you get the wrong stuff, you will mess your body for sure. Um, Tomas knows about our, our friend, I won't mention his name, who comes from uh, Niagara Falls, Buffalo area, and was a football player in his youth and got into the football team industry where in high school um, winning is everything and in order to win you better bulk up you gotta get out there so you can kick butt and this is it's it's the reason I know this is because our friend when we were walking from the bus stop at the foot of Dayushan up to Tsushing Monastery uh, our monastery in Hong Kong is uh, up on the mountain and you have to walk the last couple miles up to it. And uh, he and I had a chance to, to investigate his experience as a football player in high school in America just a couple years back because he's a young guy. And he was telling me about the culture of protein supplements for the body, for bodybuilding, and what it does to your mind and what it does to your nervous system, and what it does to your digestion, and what it does to your emotions. And when you cram your body with this uh, fabricated substance, it, uh, you, can, you get big fast, but it creates, uh, there's, there's if, especially if it has any kind of steroids in it, and, you know, these are should be controlled substances. Some places they are, some not, right? Steroids, I'm not sure if, whether they're illegal or not now, but at one point they were not. They were just, people were still experimenting on them. And he said, the, um, when you take a uh, 16-year-old, 17-year-old kid who's already trying to deal with his hormones, right? Trying, these, we're talking about guys. And they're trying to sort out all these, that their body is new every day something different and and there's an awkward time when you you reach for stuff and you knock it over because your body's new different than it was yesterday you know every every guy goes through this and then you add this uh super super uh stimulant that makes the body grow at a faster rate than normal what happens is it increases aggression and it desensitizes to pain, for example. So you have these guys who are motivated by sensations in their body and numbed to proper sensations in their body to do things like banging themselves on each other and on dummy, on tackling dummies and fists to jaw and the the kind of music this my my informant, my 20-year-old informant who was telling me about this said, 
the music that comes out of this. Some, you, probably you wouldn't be listening to it, but uh, death metal and music that is played at high decibels with big drums is music born of this phenomena of guys who's, who are, they have this between their senses and their, uh, and the environment around them, they have this layer of, of uh, stimulating um, hormones, right? Triple the dose. It's like if your car runs on, on regular and you fill it up with high test. If you put Supreme, you know, in your car instead of, instead of uh, norm, regular gas, what happens? Well, it's, your car might fire faster for a while, but it just sludges up. It's not meant to take that. The body is the same. And he was saying that these guys would uh, get revved up to a pitch where they simply couldn't sustain it. And they had to release it. And the only way they could release it was with violence and aggression or just banging themselves against each other. And there was a few, there was maybe one, one decade when these substances were being used all over the country by football and, and, high, and contact sport kids that that generation was used as guinea pigs to see what the result of these substances were. Now there are football teams that investigate and prevent their kids from taking them because what they've learned is it doesn't go away. You don't, when you stop taking them, let's say you graduate from the football team, the, that bulking up uh, doesn't go away and that you have to deal with that, that uh, short-circuiting of the, the nerves. So I had, I had no clue. When I was hearing this story, I was flabbergasted because this, I, I'm obviously not a high school football player, but I've been m removed from it for a long time too. And I, when I was a baseball player and a basketball player, but not football, and there was nobody I knew who ever considered steroids. It was, why would you do that, you know? And the idea of bulking as kind of your style, uh, I, I'd never heard of that. So he, uh, my, my young friend said, um, he determined to get off that regime. And he tried it for a while. He was, because everybody on the football team did. You had to take that stuff if you were not, if you wanted to compete. And at one point he said, uh, maybe he had an injury. I don't know how the story went, but he, took a break for a while and uh, then because he was forced to not, you know, he had to, to cool it, so he stopped taking it and he saw his teammates go on with it and actually physically burn out because their bodies were pushed to a level that they could not sustain in order to hit harder and to push that ball across the goal line. So he said many, many of his friends and classmates are now uh, looking forward to a lifetime of flipping burgers, a lifetime of maybe driving for, for FedEx if they can. They can drive. They can do things that, that accelerate, right? Driving fast, but not much more because their brains have been fried, their synapses have been fried, and they're big, and a lot of them go in the army, but in the army doesn't want these guys who are hyper-violent and who are 
you know, emotionally unpredictable. So how interesting. And I haven't read about this anywhere, but I, I trust my friend telling me this, that, that that's what really what happened across the country where football is played. I don't know about wrestling, whether wrestling did it or lacrosse, but I do know that football is one place where a generation of young men got their bodies ruined by this shenjian, the view of the body. Right? How interesting. Who would think about that? Am I the only one who knows about this? Tomas knows, because, yeah. Yeah. A little louder? We can't quite hear. Uh-huh, right, 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 right. Yeah. So Connie is saying that she, she's heard that she knows classmates who go to the gym and, and uh, pump iron in order to pump up. She asked why to do that, and the answer was for the girls at night, you know. And, okay, well, that, you know, that's kind of young, but still, you think about it, it's... it's It's a lifestyle and a sport, yeah, focused on the body. And we don't know what happens to people who bulk up once they stop. What happens to all that tissue once you stop? Interesting. Yes, ma'am? Steroids. It is actually steroids. So it's not just whey and, and organic substances. It's chemicals designed to... Yeah, yeah. I've heard that too. And that was that was the darker side of what my friend was saying was that there were not everybody but a few of his teammates just what I I don't I'm way out of my league here knowing chemically what they do but these substances just they override your natural limiters governors inside to say that's enough. You know, or I can't take that. So that you hit harder past your limit, past your own warning. And steroids will do that. They take you into an unusual, you know. And if it's, um, um, what's our bike racer champion? Lance, if it's Lance Armstrong, then it's, the, it's strictly regulated by international bodies and you have to work hard to to cheat as he did but if it's just high school sports nobody cares whether you're a third string you know tackle or you're the nose guard or something and it's not regulated closely so these high school kids become guinea pigs for experiment China. Mm. 
Superman. Superman. Yeah. For the mind, yeah. Right. Chemistry. Correct. Yeah. 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 Uh huh. Injury more frequently. Yeah. Master Dashing is saying that that uh, in in the Olympics early on they saw that how Eastern European countries and Russia and now more and more people suspect China um, train train kids from early childhood even sometimes without their knowing that if a kid is in a sports school or or a camp or something. Uh, that the kids are fed these substances that will turn them into superior athletes. But what happens is it's very easy to get addicted to these, looking and feeling a certain way. And then if you stop, then what? You feel like you're no longer God or Superman, you're nothing. And so you need, instead of the body responding, the mind starts to get addicted to, to this way of feeling and being. And that the actual, one of the actual results of doing this to the body is that when you get so big, your bones and your sinews cannot support this extra weight and bulk. And as a result, you, you get injured easily. So here we are. Now, back to the, the sutra principle, which is what? It's called shenjian, view of the body. And the Buddha would say, you know, we started out with the... Uh, the 22 Korean beauty pageants, and we got all the way to high school athletes on steroids. And, and, it's, and then the uh, cosmetics and hair color and diet industry, etc., etc. Um, and what do we do with aging? Oh my, you know, the, the aging process is uh, when you find an elder who is peaceful and happy in their aging, you have a treasure someone who is just not worried about this natural process. I avoid it. Why? Because I shave my head. If I didn't shave my head, I would notice that I have a receding hairline, right? And it's getting really silvery here. And, you know, my goodness. But you can't tell, can you? So I look eternally young. Ah, you know, hmm. how nice. Shave your head and you too can look eternally young. So, yeah, and... It's really hard to find somebody who says, yeah, I kind of like being old. Your body doesn't cooperate. Uh, yesterday, uh, we had an 80-year-old cardiologist here visiting with uh, Pavi and, and Guri. And this is a doctor from Albuquerque who is 80 years old, but he does not look 80. He looks ageless. And what does he do? He, he has opened a clinic to rejuvenate hearts. It's called New Heart Medical Center. And people come in who's, who have a couple stints and a re bypass and they're afraid they're going to die again. And, and he gets them out on the road and you know, starts them exercising and, and saves people's lives. And he himself is this tall, 
beanpole 80 year old guy who just looks you know fit and radiant and you think okay that's an 80 year old today we had uh, a 90 year old woman from Manchuria here for lunch uh, Mrs. Han Han Nivolo who's uh, been the Chinese teacher at Laney College for 30 plus years 90 years old nobody believed it that she's 90 she's just you know straight and strong and radiant and happy so it's the view of the body that that invites us to get to that place where we say old gray hair wrinkles yeah i kind of like it i think it looks suits me you know who could say that nobody it's like <gasps> you know i got to do something about it dye my hair get a facelift plastic surgery you know Oh my. So it's a big one. It's a really big one. That's the point of all this, is to say, yeah, the Buddha is helping us by saying, hmm, where do we stand vis-a-vis the view of the body? It's a delusion. Why? Because it's not what we think. It's earth, air, fire, and water here temporarily in this form borrowed from the planet and it's going to go back to the planet once we move on. It will. You know that's true. And so what do we do with it while we have it? Try to keep it healthy. Try to keep it balanced. Try to do as much good as possible with the body we have. Good enough. If, if we could just do that, we would be getting the benefit of being a Buddhist or listening to Buddhist sutras to, you know, worth the price of admission to be able to say, yeah, this one's here now. I've had other ones. I'm going to have another one. Let me do good deeds with it while I can. And if I can do that, the next one I get will be even better. I'll like it even more. I'll look in the mirror and I won't think, got to change that. I don't like that. Today I don't look like, I don't look like myself. You know. And how wonderful to be able to say, this body is like a car. I drive it till I can't drive it anymore. There's another one ahead of me. I've had other cars. I'm going to drive it skillfully and make it a great vehicle take people along for the ride you know right on that's figuring it out what does it mean to figure it out that right not to get too hung up on the vehicle we have and just drive it well you know in my camera blogs there are these people who only talk about the cameras never press the shutter Right? They're really attached to the latest and the neatest. And I suppose that's fun. It's hobbyists. But the purpose of the camera is to let light in through the lens so it makes an image and you look at it and you go, yeah, it's very pretty. You know, or that's the way it is. Nope. People talk about the megapixels on the sensor and how many degrees of, of uh, uh, what is it? The, the, M, the WD factor and and whether the shutter is continuous focus, it's on and on and on, endless, endless. So we look at the body instead of looking with the body, right? We pay attention to the surface and forget that it's here to help us create merit, make people's pain go away. That's, that's what it's about. So a bodhisattva who is skillful can use these expedients to help beings expel their delusions, such as the view of a body and so forth, and influence them to hold right views. Let me point to one more before we jump off it. What is one of the worst things that we do with our body? Eat other bodies. 
If we saw our body the way it is, would we eat meat? Probably not. Why? Because we would say, I love my body. I, I want to have, I want to hang on to it till it's time to go. And I think other critters do too. So for me to take my body and interfere with that critter's body because it tastes good would be wrong. Study after study says anymore, we don't need meat in our bodies to be very healthy. In fact, it's more and more we learn that it's the other way around. The more meat we put into our bodies, the less healthy we become. Because meat is no longer a clean food, if it ever was. It's not necessary for optimum health. Um, <coughs> talk about views of the body. At VegSource last October, uh, James Lightning Wilkes was interviewed. Who is he? He is the mixed martial arts champion of the world. He's a British guy, and he was in L.A., and he's a vegan. It's a guy who is the toughest, meanest, fastest, most lethal kicker and puncher that you could find. Mixed martial arts is Taekwondo, Judo, um, wrestling, and kickboxing. Is that the four that go into mixed martial arts? And this guy, with his shirt on, he looks fit. He's like straight. He's like this, energetic, not like me. Sitting energetically, like that. And he's just, and his neck, you notice his neck, his neck's really thick. Chances are his wrists are pretty thick too. But when he takes his shirt off, he doesn't look all bulked up. He looks like he's made of iron. He looks like if you punch him, your hand hurts, you know. <laughs> like, oh, you know, because you can't knock him down. And he's, he's the winner. He beat an American for the final. Vegan eats plants got to that strength and speed. And he talks like this. You know, why, why do you... Oh, I eat this way because I, I find that I, I'm able to recover more quickly after my workouts. And uh, I feel light, I feel quick, I feel good. Right. And uh, don't get in my way. Uh, no, he doesn't say that. But you feel that. It's like, wow, this guy he eats plants and he's the fastest. The, be the best animal among humans in the world when it comes to knocking somebody down. Eats plants. His name is Lightning Wilkes, James Lightning. Okay, there you go. Think about that. All right. Need that beef. Get my, I want to get a Big Mac so my kid will get into Harvard. All right? Nope. Think again. Okay, moving on here. 不是爱与利恒同事如是一切诸所作业 in giving kind words, beneficial conduct, and similar work, all of the karmic actions he performs are connected to mindfulness of the Buddha, connected to mindfulness of the Dharma, and connected to mindfulness of the Sangha, up to and including connected to mindfulness of endowment with the wisdom of the wisdom of all modes. This paragraph says that the Bodhisattva has thoughts in his mind, no matter what he's doing, no matter what she's doing. What are they? Take a look. It's Fo Fa Sung and Chizu Ichiju. These are called the um, 
the mindfulnesses. There's actually two more. There's said to be six. And the two that are not in this list are giving and the devas. So this bodhisattva does stuff because he's, he's a god and he's probably busy teaching. Clearly he is. He's always using expedient means to get people to let go of their wrong views and pick up their, good view, their right views. And it says in four things. Anybody know the name of this list? The first four? What are these called? Anybody? What are they? In Chinese, you could say? Okay, yes. This side, what, what, what was it? Over here? The clock is ticking. Doesn't anybody want extra credit? Come on. They're called what? All right. We call them in English the four methods of attraction. The four ways of bringing people closer. Four things that bring people in. This, these are bodhisattva's power tools. And, you know, we talked about the bodhi resolve. I want to become a Buddha, ultimately, but the way I do it is by by helping people get past their suffering. Literally translates as changing living beings. That's what it means. How do you do it? How, if you want to change living beings, if you want to help people end their suffering, you better get close to them. You can't do it online. You have to actually get close to them. They have to, they have to hear your voice. They have to smell you. They have to like watch you smile. You know, and hear, hear, watch the way you move. What are they? Giving, nice talk, things that help them out, and cooperation or teamwork. Those are the four. So if you want to cross somebody over, you have to give them things, you have to talk nicely, you have to help them, you have to work with them. Four power tools that bodhisattvas use, so four methods of attraction. And as the bodhisattva does those huge, you know, you think about what was the last person you gave something to? Who was the last person you spoke nicely to? As you were doing that, what's going on in your mind? For the bodhisattva, it says all of the things that he or she does, fully, they're never away from nian, thoughts. What kind of thoughts? It gives us four. He's thinking of the Buddha, in other words, awakening, enlightenment, light. He's thinking of the Dharma, in other words, practice, methods, techniques, skillful procedures. Thinking of the Sangha, that is to say, a community devoted to the Dharma, and thinking of wisdom. And it's got a fancy name. Jizu Yi Che Zhong Yi Che Zhi is the Buddha's wisdom. There are two more in there, which are thinking of giving and thinking of the state of the devas, in other words, a state of purity. So as the Bodhisattva is helping people, he's got his mind on these, or she has her mind on these. That's what's in their mind. Not bad. Some people have thoughts of day trading. Stocks they wish they'd bought because they went up yesterday and they missed. Other people are thinking today, anybody thinking about horse racing? Today was the Kentucky Derby. I need to ask, how many people are aware of the Kentucky Derby happening today? Okay, a few. All right. People who 
grew up in New York. Yeah, we know that. Americans. I grew up, man, everybody knew the Kentucky Derby. Everybody. It was a holiday. Yeah. And the, the Indy 500 was another one. Indianapolis 500 road race. Not, see, different culture. Midwestern American culture knew these things. Indy 500, Kentucky Derby. Okay, what is racing's triple crown? For extra credit on the exam. After the Kentucky, Kentucky Derby comes the? Starts with a B. Belmont, followed by? Preakness. Preakness. Okay, five points to Kevin and Bill. All right. Racing's Triple Crown. We have not had a Triple Crown winner, one horse that won all three for a very long time. Last year, I forget his name, but he got two out of three. Almost. So, see all these facts you'd never know if you didn't come to Sutra Lecture, by golly. So, yeah, and it's a horse race. So, um, some of us are thinking, none of us here, but we have a racetrack right down at the end of University Avenue and Golden Gate Fields, by golly. I got here in 71 and it was big racing. You go by there and it was blazing with light at night. And I used to live in Albany Hill when I was a grad student. And I'd be studying, you know, studying Chinese literature. And then I would hear behind me this and it's the last 200 yards of the race. The horses are, you know, heading for the finish line, galloping as fast as they possibly can go. These beautiful animals. And the stands, because these people have hundreds of dollars riding on, you know, a fraction of a nose. And I think, oh, the races. You know, <laughs> the, the roar would fill the east side of the bay, you know. And then they'd pipe down. You wouldn't hear anything for 30 minutes. And then, Second race, you know. That was a way of life and pretty much over. Golden Gate Fields is rarely used anymore. What's the one in San Jose they shut? You guys are South Bay folks. Down by the, the airport, it's the other racetrack. What was it called? Come on, Palo Alto. What was the name of the racetrack down there? You remember? You guys, I know. It was shut not long ago. It was, it was historic racetrack. Back uh, before the war, after the, uh, the Depression, horse racing in America was a major uh, cultural event. It was, you know, uh, Seabiscuit and all that. All right. We can't go too far afield as we illustrate these principles. So, right. Horse racing. So, yeah, some people, you know, keep that in mind. The Bodhisattva has the Buddha, the Dharma, the Sangha, wisdom. Giving gods, devas, in his mind as he or she gives as they bring people in. So for sure, their behavior, their thoughts and actions are tuned in on the three jewels, the three gems and wisdom. All right. That's our bodhisattva on the fourth stage, the fourth ground. Um, he's going to uh, talk. He's going to make a reflection in the next paragraph, and then we're going to find out, here's our refrain, how many Buddhas this Bodhisattva sees, and then uh, how long these thoughts go. And after that, we are in the verses. If you turn over to page 23, 
25, 27, we're, we're done with the verses, and that's the fourth ground. So that will be next week. We're going to get there for sure. I'm going to get to the verses. Now, um, I want to um, lead everybody in the transference of merit and then um, keep... Uh, I want to read something also before we're done. We have something special. And somebody reminded me that right this minute, Malaysia... Malaysia is in in the process of an election. The voting is happening now. And while we don't do politics here, even in this country, I don't uh, ever indicate my preferences because I'm in a privileged position here, the bully pulpit, and I don't want to. That would, that would be to abuse this, this role. But I can... Um, encourage people to um, put their hearts out in in a wish for peaceful transition of power. There is some fear that there could be violence in Malaysia because many, many, many eyes and hearts are on that election and um, hoping that the transfer of power can be peaceful and harmonious and that the interests of the people will be served. It'd be wonderful if Malaysia could teach America something about politi- you know, fair and even politics without corruption and without you know, money talking versus people's best interests talking. And Malaysia has had a history of... Uh, racial violence and and political violence, but not for a long time. And uh, it's the joy of Malaysian politics is that it's moderate and uh, very progressive. If you, my example is when you uh, ride the freeways in Malaysia, when you stop off at a roadside rest, when you have to get gas or get a drink, the gas stations are spotless, sanitary, clean places where uh, all these volunteers, their employees are not volunteers, they come out with gloves on, you know, and uniforms and help you uh, fill your tank with gas and get whatever refreshments you need, use the bathrooms that are spotless. And that's, that's the rule, not the exception. It's amazing how, and then you come back to, you know, <laughs> Highway 5 going north. Oh, my goodness. So, Malaysia is a wonderful place, and uh, a lot is up for grabs. Big, uh, some people are calling it the biggest election in the history of Malaysia. Vince? Amazing. The only country in the world that has refused to let the World Bank and the International Monetary Fund come in and take over their finances. How about that? That's confidence to be able to say, no, we'll do it ourselves monetarily. Beautiful country. Unfortunately, a lot, a lot of that wealth has to do with growing palm trees and ripping down everything else. But, you know, you can't have everything. So let's transfer merit and hope that it goes uneventfully, that Malaysia really shows us how democracy can work.
Of course, you can transfer merit any way you choose. share this. Um, last week, I shared with you um, some of the responses of students that uh, I taught in Australia, and it was a real privilege, um, unexpected, to be able to um, get into the minds of these very mainstream, normal folks who saw Buddhism fresh uh, for the very first time. And let me share with you some of their thoughts. Uh, just 500-word essays. The question on the final exam was, um, write about, write 500 words about any thoughts that have changed since you took the Buddhist philosophy course. Buddhist philo this is a young woman from uh, Illinois. Buddhist philosophy has been an extremely influential course in my collegiate career. I initially took the class to fulfill a required theology credit for my university back home. Though I had an interest in learning more about Buddhist ethics, I had no idea the impact taking the course would have on my perspective of life and my surroundings. The ideas of interdependence, filiality, and the emphasis on my power over the outcome of my future will have a lasting impact on how I navigate my experiences and the decisions I make. Interdependence through same-body great compassion has helped me to appreciate all aspects of life. I've always considered myself to be a caring individual, especially relating to nature. 
I feel like the concept of same body, great compassion, has awakened these sensitivities by making me constantly aware of my relationship with all living things. Understanding that the same elements of earth, air, fire, and water reside in all beings, usually being utilized in the same ways, makes me appreciate the world around me. This realization has also caused me to be more conscious in my actions and has brought about thoughtfulness that I did not connect to my previous affiliation with nature. Exploring filiality and the importance of our human roots was not the easiest thing to do while studying abroad. I found myself overjoyed by the generosity and selflessness of my family and wanting nothing more than to repay them with kindness and many hugs. Since being away, I've realized how much my mom and my two older brothers mean to me. I believe that studying filiality has added to my appreciation for the people who care about me. Since learning this concept, I found it very hard to be lonely. I think that before, I was constantly searching for someone to love and care about me without realizing how many beautiful people I already had. I'm so much happier after realizing I'm satisfied with the love I have. I'm no longer yearning for that company, but have noticed that since this realization, making connections with others has appeared organically. The final thing I learned through Buddhist philosophy was that, that has had the largest impact on my daily experience is knowing that I'm in charge of my own life. I'm in charge of my own life. My decisions are what shape my future. Growing up in the Catholic Church, this idea has never been presented relating to spirituality. I always found it contradicting that an individual was punished for his or her sins, but God was the one who determined their life path. Not only was being introduced to Buddhism a way to better understand why I experienced hardships, but also a solution to them. It has been wonderful medication for self-pity. I'm offered the explanation that my past actions are what are bringing about my current situation, which makes difficulties easier to be at peace with. I'm also reminded that good deeds I do now will help me later. It's easy to believe that doing good goes unrewarded. Buddhist philosophy stresses that although doing good won't necessarily pay off immediately, it is in your best interests in the long run. How about that? Impressive. One more here. This is a young woman from uh, New England, from Connecticut, who uh, was, uh, she described herself as a leader in college. Uh, in this, she was in a sorority, but somebody who never considered herself deep in any way. That's how she explained it in her first writing. And turns out that much deeper than she knew. Buddhist philosophy has influenced my thoughts and actions in many ways. The three topics I will focus on are storytelling as a primary means for carrying on wisdom and values, precepts as doors to liberation, not as obstacles to freedom, and who is in charge of my life and how to become the architect of my future. To be told what to do and to know between right and wrong is easy, but to actually understand it is an entirely different concept. A parent, friend, teacher, or religious figure can strictly tell you but it's far more effective to ensure the person understands through storytelling. Also, it's an excellent way to keep people's attention and grasp the value you're trying to illustrate. This is very effective for children especially. 
I've truly enjoyed watching other students present their projects through stories or puppets in this class. I'm afraid I infected them with the puppet dharma. I'm sorry. I was able to understand the points they were trying to get across, especially the humorous Bill Clinton puppet a fellow student made to explain the five precepts. It was classic. It looked just like him. It was great. I did not have any connection with that. As I touched upon in question four, precepts are extremely important to liberate ourselves from suffering. I'm Catholic, so the precepts interrelate with the Ten Commandments that I always try to abide by. However, I like how Buddhist philosophy not only focuses on how these affect your life, but also how it affects others and the world around you. They do not tie you down and keep you from living free, but rather they are what set you free. They keep you living an honest and moral life. If we follow the precepts, we will not have to worry about karma because our righteous actions are enough to put us on the right track to liberation. This is a Catholic college student who's never heard Buddhism before. When I first began learning about the precepts, I thought they were meant to be taken in a specific and literal sense. For example, when they say abstain from killing, they also mean animals or insects. I've never thought stepping on an ant as something that will have consequences. Now I will try harder to protect all of Earth's living creatures. As a Catholic, I, always taught, I was always taught that God had control over my life. The decisions he makes are beyond my control, and I cannot change that. After taking this class, it's opened me up to a different perspective. I believe that every decision I make is my responsibility, and I'm the only person that controls that. I determine the outcomes of what happens to me on a daily basis. It isn't fate or luck, but it's based on what I put into the situation. My input always affects my output. No one else is to be blamed myself if something does not go as planned or go the way I originally wanted it to. In order to create a better future, I need to work on myself in the present. These are only a few things I learned this semester from Buddhist philosophy. It's opened my eyes to a new way of looking at myself in the world. I hope to continue the study of Buddhism and meditation in the future. How about that? That's really satisfying for 13 weeks of two hours a week and, you know, supportive readings. So, worth it, worth it. Yeah, I know. I I've had the same thought, Phil. I'm thinking of uh, writing to the students and saying, would you mind if we quote you, you know, this, that's what you wrote was very, very helpful for other folks. And, and uh, I think most of them will probably say, eh, it's all right. You know, I want all royalties and credits, but, you know. Now they'll probably say, no problem. Don't use my name, no problem. I don't want it to get back to my classmates back in Boston or Chicago or St. Louis that, that I've now been with the b- b- Buddhists. Maybe not. Maybe they're proud of it. Who knows? Okay, uh, time is up. We will see you here next Saturday for the conclusion of the prose section of the, f- the fourth ground. And we'll move on to the verses. Please have a lovely, blessed week full of mindfulness of the Buddha, the Dharma, the Sangha, and wisdom. See you next week. Ah, forgot the announcements. Ha! Tomorrow morning, Buddha recitation. Um, Starting at 7.30, come and recite 
with Dharma friends uh, all day long, vegetarian lunch uh, done in silence. Then um, the Buddha's birthday. Buddha's birthday is next Sunday at CDDB. So that's the beginning of the 10,000 Buddha's repentance. In case anybody has had a thought of doing that, now is the time to, to consider. You don't have to do all three weeks. Um, if you do and you took refuge, you finish your requisite 10,000 bows in one, one month. But uh, to go up even for one day of the 10,000 Buddha's repentance is quite wonderful. So look at your calendar. So Buddha's birthday next Sunday at CTDB and then um, 10,000 Buddha's repentance.